Some people brought blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hands and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, as Kate says, this is, we're heading into what many Christians regard as Holy Week, and that time in the year when we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've not got to that bit in Mark's gospel yet, but we are at the turning point in Mark, where the road to the cross really begins from Mark chapter 8. So that's where we're looking today. And just as those sheets go out there, I just, again, to think for a second, what maybe was the most important question you were asked maybe this last week? Have a think. What was the most important question you were asked this week? Because actually each one of us were asked a multitude of questions right the way through our lives. Some questions seem fairly unimportant, fairly impersonal. Do you want tea or coffee? What do you want to watch on TV? Do you want fries with that? Those are fairly unimportant questions in some ways, depending on how much you love fries, TV, and hot drinks. Other questions reveal a bit more about ourselves, like what's your favorite color? What what football team do you support? And still other questions are deeply personal and even life-changing. Do you want the job? Will you buy the house? Will you marry me? Big questions. And in this bit of Mark, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Verse 29, who do you say I am? It's arguably the central question in Mark's gospel. And it's also the most important question you or I will ever be asked to give a response to. It's a question Jesus asked every single one of us as we read Mark's gospel together Today And the answer we give to that question is going to shape the course of the rest of our lives. Now, in one sense, Jesus begins at a bit of a, a softer place, really. Verse 27, he begins with a related question to his disciples. Who do people say I am? And, and that's kind of simpler, less threatening to answer. We can say, well, we'll have heard different answers about you, Jesus. Maybe you're a good teacher. Maybe, maybe you're, you're good with kids. Maybe you're, you're a miracle worker. 
You see, Jesus doesn't leave that question at the general, impersonal level. He wants to know of his disciples, and he wants to know of us. Who do you say I am? We can't rely on other people to answer that for us. That's the point of decision that Jesus is bringing his disciples to. I believe Jesus brings everyone to at this stage in Mark's gospel. And we've maybe said already, but Mark chapter 8, this is like a pivotal chapter in Mark's gospel, like the climax of the first act heading in to the final act, where the disciples finally get to see the true identity of Jesus, the man they've been following up to this point. But actually they discover this identity is very different, but actually even better than they first thought it was. If you've been here at all the last few months, there's different ways of dividing Mark's gospel. A quite helpful way is looking Mark chapter 1 to 8. The dominant question is, who is Jesus? We're coming to the finale of that today. We've seen the crowds ask that question. The religious leaders ask that question. King Herod asked that question. The disciples ask that question. And that question's finally answered here from the mouth of Peter, one of the disciples. Peter answers, you are the Messiah the Christ. What that means is you are God's anointed king come to put things right in the world. It's a huge title that Peter gives to Jesus here. And so from this point onwards in Mark, the question shifts not from who is Jesus, he's the Messiah, God's king, comes to put things right in the world, but the question then becomes why has Jesus come? And it's going to take Jesus and and Mark and the disciples, the rest of this gospel, to really begin to answer that question. But but Jesus begins to do that here in verse 31 and following. And we're going to see the disciples react to Jesus' answer with shock and horror. Because Jesus, he is the Messiah, God's anointed king, comes to put things right in the world. And he's going to do that by suffering and dying for his people. Jesus, he's a very different king to the one his disciples expect, a very different king to any human ruler we might think of. He turns our human ideas of power and glory completely on their heads. He is God's king who chooses voluntarily and with all his being to suffer and die to set his people free from sin and death. He knows we're powerless to rescue ourselves, so he is going to do it for us. And why does he do it? Well, again, Jesus reveals that here to the disciples because he loves us, because he wants us in his family forever. This is the beginning of the answer to that question, why has Jesus come? But it's a glorious answer. It's different, but it's better than what we would expect. So just to look at this passage under two headings, Um, The first bit we're going to call sort of an unexpected healing, and that's verses 22 to 26. And then the next bit is as the unexpected king, verses 27 to 33. That's that's where we're headed. So first of all, then, an unexpected healing, verses 22 to 26. And you might actually first of all say, well, this doesn't seem that unexpected if you've read Mark's gospel up to this point. But, But in these verses, Jesus, he heals a blind man in a town called Bethsaida. That's in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus in the far north of Israel here. And, and he heals this blind man, but at first we go, well, well, that's not very unexpected at all. And right the way through chapters 1 to 8 of Mark's gospel, Jesus heals a large number of people as a sign that he is God's king, come to establish God's kingdom 
here on earth. So we say, well, it's a blind man. It's, it's not a big deal, we think. So how is this blind man's healing similar to what Jesus has done before? We'll take a look at verses 22 to 23. And first of all, there are people, either family or friends, who bring the blind man to Jesus and beg Jesus, verse 22, to touch him. So we've seen this repeatedly in Mark's gospel. People bring their loved ones to Jesus and beg Jesus to heal them. A recent example, back in chapter 7, there was a deaf and mute man who had people bring him to Jesus. Then verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand. Again, that's a nice detail, but again, it shows Jesus cares for this blind man. He's not a big showy miracle worker. He cares for him. He, he gently leads him to where he needs to be. He doesn't want to make a scene about this blind man. We've seen that throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus treats people as individuals. He doesn't treat everybody the same. He knows what the person standing in front of him needs him to do in every instance. And another similarity is that Jesus led him outside the village before he healed him. Again, Jesus often heals people away from the crowds. Maybe different to what we expect. We think, surely Jesus miracles, these massive demonstrations of his power. But Jesus, it seems he doesn't want his healing power to be seen by everyone. Or for maybe him to be defined by his healing ministry in the eyes of everyone. But perhaps the main reason why Jesus heals this blind man away from the crowds is actually for the sake of his disciples. Because this healing in particular is for the benefit of his disciples. This healing is like a parable in Mark. It's a picture of the disciples of who they are and what Jesus is able to do in their lives. And Graham's already spelled it out for us today, but actually this is a unique healing in Mark and in any of the Gospels because it's the only healing that takes place in stages instead of being instant. It is the only example of a two-stage healing that we have. And in that sense, it's an unexpected healing. So look again at the end of verse 23 with me. Jesus takes the man outside the village and, and when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? The blind man said he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, do not go into the village. Again, what is going on here? I would say Jesus does a couple of odd things here. Um, you might have noticed first. 23. First of all, Jesus spat on the man's eyes. I suspect the blind man and his friends weren't expecting that. If you look at verse 22, his friends bring the blind man to Jesus for him to touch him, presumably an act of healing, not to spit on him. And again, Graham very nicely didn't act that bit out in our all-age slot earlier. So, so what is Jesus doing here? Now, actually, Jesus has spat on things before in Mark's gospel. If you look back in chapter 7 and verse 33, when Jesus healed a deaf and mute man, the implication there was that Jesus touched the man's tongue with some of his saliva, which might seem odd enough. But here it seems Jesus spits directly on this man's eyes. And that's a bit disgusting, and it's a bit unexpected, isn't it? Jesus heals in an unexpected way here. And I just think in passing, in a general sense, it just reminds us that Jesus 
does the unexpected sometimes. I think there's a danger for anyone who maybe encounters Jesus for maybe a few years even. You begin to think, oh yeah, Jesus, I kind of know him. He's, he's sort of nice and he's sort of predictable and he does nice things to people who ask him. Actually, these, the blind man's friends, they think they know exactly what Jesus needs to do. Here he, here he is, Jesus. Touch him and we'll be on our way. And instead, Jesus takes him outside the village with his disciples, spits on him, and then touches him. It's kind of baffling. And to be honest, I'm a bit baffled by it. But I think we maybe need to be baffled by Jesus sometimes. Often we think, I know exactly what you need to do, Jesus. And our prayers are basically about like room service. We say, Jesus, there's a problem here. Can you come and fix it, please? This person's struggling. Can you fix them, please? And Jesus often does something unexpected, very different to what we think. Jesus is not safe and predictable. And in a sense, more specifically to the disciples here, I think Jesus in this miracle is preparing them for just what an unexpected king he really is. Because again, it's not only odd that he spits on the man's eyes, what's also odd is the man is not instantly healed. Again, this is the only example we have of a two-stage healing in the Gospels. So verse 24, the first time Jesus puts his hands on the blind man, he can see in part, but it's a blurred, imperfect vision. I see people, the blind man says, they look like trees walking around. Maybe this blind man wasn't born blind. We're not told he was. So he maybe has a memory of what trees look like, maybe from his childhood. And he goes, yeah, I can see people. It's like trees walking around. Now I wear contact lenses or glasses, so I, I, I do that all the time because basically without that, I think I would be much like the blind man in verse 24. I would see people like trees walking around. They'd be blurred. It would be fuzzy. It would be indistinct. And Jesus has to touch the man's eye a second time in verse 25 before his sight's fully restored. And this is troubling for people at first. Because basically, well, did Jesus do it wrong the first time? Did he need a second attempt to get this guy right. Whereas with this guy's eyes so messed up that Jesus sort of had to do it in stages. Well, again, if we've been up to this point in Mark, we know the answer to that is actually no. Jesus didn't need a second attempt to finish the job. We actually, Jesus' other healings in Mark's gospel, think of the raising a dead girl back to life in chapter five or, or healing another blind man in a couple of chapters time, chapter 10. He does it instantly. Even just with a word, he doesn't even have to be there physically to heal People. So why is Jesus healing this man the way he does here? Again, Jesus, it seems, is painting a picture for the disciples of what is going on in their lives and what their understanding of Jesus is up to this point. Because up to this point in Mark's gospel, Peter and the other disciples, they've been, they've been watching Jesus. They've been listening to Jesus. They've been wondering at Jesus. They've been learning from Jesus. But in spite of all that, they have remained spiritually blind. You see, in all that time, Jesus has been putting his hands on their eyes again and again, and he has been gradually healing their spiritual blindness. So very soon, the disciples will be able to see who Jesus is for the first time, but only in part. Verse 24, like, like trees walking around, fuzzy. They still have a way to go. They don't yet understand who Jesus is fully. He has more to show them about himself. But actually, this miracle 
proves to the disciples Jesus is able to fully heal them eventually. See, the bad news of this miracle for the disciples is, well, left your own devices, you are spiritually blind. You cannot see me for who I really am. But the good news of this miracle is that we're not left to our own devices. Jesus is patient with us. He perseveres with us. And Jesus will enable us to see him for true he truly is as he places his hands on our eyes and heals our spiritual blindness. What about you? I sort of prefer the instant miracles. I like it when it's just like that. But actually, often the way Jesus works in someone's life is a process that takes time. That goes for someone first seeing Jesus for who he is. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes prayer and love for someone to come from a place of blindness to seeing Jesus. But Jesus is active the whole time. And actually, even if you're already a Christian, if you say, well, yeah, I kind of have seen Jesus. I, I, I trust him. I, I believe in him. Well, actually, that process of removing your blindness, that's a process ongoing until the day you see him face to face. We keep needing Jesus to open our eyes to see him more clearly in our lives. That is why we pray as Christians. That is why we listen to and read God's word as Christians, because we go, I actually don't see Jesus fully yet. I keep forgetting about him. I keep misunderstanding him. I keep, I keep struggling to trust his goodness. See, we need Jesus to keep opening our eyes to him through the work of the Holy Spirit so we can know him and love him more in our lives, so we can experience his love and care for us, so we can listen to what he has to say to us in our lives in both good times and hard times. And the good news of this miracle is if we keep coming to Jesus like this blind man does, like the disciples do here, Jesus will continue his work of opening our eyes so we see him more clearly, so we can live as his disciples in this world, so we can even make disciples for Jesus in this world. So it's an unexpected healing. It's different to the other ones, and it sort of sets the scene for this moment in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus reveals himself to be the unexpected king. If you want to turn to verse 27 here. And again, geography kind of matters here. We're up in Caesarea Philippi, the area surrounding that. That's the far north of Israel. So it's basically as far away from the capital city, Jerusalem, as it's possible to get. It's mainly a mixed area, lots of non-Jewish people. But if you like, this is where Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem that culminates on Palm Sunday, the day we mark today. Here's where Jesus' journey to Jerusalem begins from this far northern territory in Caesarea Philippi. And when they're around there, far away from the religious leaders, far away from many Jewish people, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. Verse 27, Jesus and disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. It's a huge moment in Mark's gospel. 
That question has been repeated again and again. Who is this man? And the answers the crowds give show just how highly Jesus is viewed by lots of the people around him. They're, they're actually doing real honor to him, they think. Well, he's a bit like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. This is a big deal. These are big figures in Israel's history. Finally, Peter, on behalf of the other disciples, realizes none of those answers go far enough in understanding who Jesus really is. And at last, Peter gets it right. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're God's king. Come to put things right in God's world. Peter gets it just so right here. And again, remember, this is an eyewitness account. Maybe Peter's remembering that moment. He's telling Mark as an old man, I remember that day. And it just came to me, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, Jesus. Peter gets it right. Then, of course, heartbeat later, Peter gets it terribly, terribly wrong. Because once Jesus is identified as the Messiah, from verse 31, Jesus sets about tearing down the image of the Messiah that Peter and the other disciples would have grown up with. Jesus says, yes, Peter, I am the king, but I'm nothing like the king you're expecting. What sort of king are they expecting? They're expecting the king to end all kings, the king with the power to defeat all God's enemies, the king who would drive out the Romans and make Israel great again. And instead, Jesus tells them that he is God's king, come to suffer and die for his people. And we see that is just a deeply offensive idea for Peter and the other disciples to hear from Jesus. It's not what they're expecting. And it all starts so well. And Peter in verse 29 says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus begins to teach them in verse 31. And he refers to himself by a title he's used before in Mark, but that now means so much more. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man in verse 31. And some of you think, is that just Jesus saying he's a human being? But actually in the Old Testament, that's a huge title. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a divine figure given authority by God to put everything right in God's world. So Daniel 7, 13 to 14, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus, just do you hear that? He just said he's the son of man. It's like, this is an amazing moment for the disciples. This is it. He's going to reveal what he's going to do. He began to teach them the son of man must what? They're, they're, they're finishing his sentence for him. He must come in power with all the angels of heaven. He must drive out the Romans from the land once and for all. He must establish Israel as the kingdom of God forever and ever. Maybe with the disciples ruling alongside him. That's how they wanted him to finish the sentence. What Jesus actually says is very, very different. Verse 31. He then began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
Reckon who's dying for a minute. He must suffer. Again, this suffer idea of God's king, it just was not in their comprehension. And maybe they think, okay, we'll suffer, but some suffering's noble, isn't it, Jesus? Some suffering, go, oh, they suffer so much, but, but what an amazing person. So maybe that's okay. But he goes, no, no, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer in such a way that I'm going to look ludicrous. I'm going to look contemptible. People are going to mock me. That's how much I'm going to suffer. And they go, well, okay, well, maybe, okay, you'll be rejected, but, but then, come on, you're going to go, ta-da, it's me. No, I'm going to be killed, he says. And who's going to reject you? Who's going to kill you? It's going to be the Romans, isn't it? The Gentiles. No, he says. It's going to be the Jewish elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the spiritual and good people of the day. And only when they've done all those things will I rise again, says Jesus. Verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly about this. And it's like just a stomach punch to Peter and the other disciples. We've been waiting so long for God's king. And this is it. This all you're going to do? So offensive and so unexpected for them. And I guess for many of us in our culture, with its history of, of Christianity, maybe our problem is we're just not shocked or offended by Jesus' death on the cross. We take it for granted. It always strikes me, actually, just the name Christians use to refer to the day when Jesus goes to the cross. Good Friday. Just to chat to people going, describe a good day for me. Good day when everything goes right. When just things click when just everything is, is, is just wonderful and you just go to bed going, that, that was a good day. And then Good Friday is the day an innocent man was arrested, falsely convicted, flogged, and beaten. And he was nailed naked to a cross where he slowly suffocated to death while his enemies mocked him and hurled insults at him. And Christians, we call that day Good Friday. That is bizarre. It might even seem offensive at first. But we do that because Jesus tells us that his suffering and death is at the heart of God's plan to put things right in his world and to put things right in his people. And look at what Jesus says in verse 31 again. He's not just predicting what is going to happen. He's actually preparing his disciples for his tragic end. No, he's actually saying this has to happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He's saying this isn't going to be an accident, Peter, disciples. I'm going to do this voluntarily. This is why I've come. It's what I've always intended to do. My suffering and death on a cross won't be a mistake. It has to happen because the world cannot be remade and set free from sin. You cannot be remade and set free from sin unless I suffer and die and then rise again. And that is what I am determined to do, says Jesus. He says, I am the king, Peter, but I'm nothing like the king you were expecting. I'm the king who chooses to suffer and die 
for his people. And you go, how does Peter and the disciples respond to this? Well, Mark tells us how they respond to it. They hate it. Verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Again, that word for rebuke in the Greek, it's the same word used when Jesus is driving out demons. He rebukes the demons. It means to condemn someone in the strongest terms possible. Peter is beside him. He's going, no, Jesus, you're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong. Suffering, rejection, death, that is not going to happen to you. I did not leave my fishing boat to come and follow you if that is the end point of this story. You're the Messiah. You just said you are. You're the Son of Man. You just said you are. Stop saying these things. Stop getting it wrong. You cannot go to your cross, Jesus. That wouldn't be right. Peter's not going, oh, that's interesting, Jesus. He hates it. He hates it. And why does Peter rebuke Jesus? The most positive explanation maybe is that Jesus is his friend. He loves Jesus. Going, I can't bring myself to think that would happen to you, Jesus. Stop it. Or it could be that his desire is Jesus be that strong king that God's people have been waiting for. He's going to defeat all God's enemies, make all things new. And that doesn't sound like the way to do it. But of course, he hasn't listened yet to what Jesus says. This is exactly how Jesus is going to defeat God's enemies and make all things new through his suffering and death. Maybe the most negative reason why Peter is rebuking Jesus is that Peter's going, well, hang on, if that's going to happen to Jesus, what's going to happen to the people who follow him? If you're going to suffer, Jesus, maybe does that mean we're going to suffer too? We didn't sign up for that. Whatever the reason, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And then verse 33, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. There is a clash of kingdoms going on here, a clash of worldviews. Because Jesus turns, looks at his disciples and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's an amazing moment. Again, and think back, you Mark, this is based on eyewitness testimony. And earliest church tradition suggests that Peter is the main eyewitness Mark speaks to. Again, back in verse 29, Peter's probably glowing with that memory. Oh, I got it right that day. I got it right. That dear diary, I did something right today. But of course, a heartbeat later, Peter gets it so badly wrong that Jesus says, Peter, you are a mouthpiece for Satan. God's enemy, Satan, does not want me to do this. And by you pleading with me not to do this, you're doing Satan's work. It's a horrific thing to say. This would be such a painful memory for Peter. He would never have forgotten Jesus saying these words to him. From such a high point, you're the Messiah. To such a low point, get behind me, Satan. But it's because this matters that Jesus uses this language. Remember, Mark, the whole New Testament tells us that Jesus was fully human. And humanly speaking, he must have wanted to avoid the suffering and rejection of the cross. Peter's words here would have been a real temptation to Jesus. So Jesus has to reject them with the strongest language he can use. Get behind me, Satan. No, I am going to do this. 
And actually, the beginning of verse 33 hints at maybe one of the reasons why Jesus was able to resist this temptation. As Mark tells us, then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. And then he rebuked Peter. That's a detail that's only in Mark's gospel. And again, it's possible that, that Peter never forgot this moment. He passed the memory on to Mark because he knew at that moment when he was rebuking Jesus, Jesus turned and looked at all his disciples. He, he looked at the people and said, no, Peter, these people need me to suffer and die so that they can be reconciled to God. He looked at his disciples and said, this is the reason I'm going to go through this, Peter. It's for you. It's for all of you. It is Jesus' love for his friends that gives him the strength to go to the cross. It's an amazing moment here. So this is the moment where Jesus reveals himself to his disciples as the Messiah, God's special king. But he gives us hints already, even though he's going to explain more and more why he has come to do what he's come to do. We get hints in Mark of why he does this. So just two things as we finish. Jesus suffers and dies for us to pay the price for our sin once and for all and to demonstrate God's love for us once and for all. A little later in Mark, Mark chapter 10, Jesus spells it out. He says, Mark 10, verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, actually, the reason I'm dying, it's not arbitrary, it's not an accident, it's not masochism, anything like that. This is to pay the price for your sin. And maybe as Christians, if we hear that the language of the gospel, forgiveness is free. It is free, freely offered to us by Jesus. But that's only because it cost Jesus everything to make that offer. That ransom idea, it is to pay the price for the damage we have done to God's world, to other people, even to ourselves. There is a price that has to be paid, says God's word. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is if he goes to the cross in the person of his son and absorbs the cost of our forgiveness himself. And that is what Jesus committed himself to do here. Verse 31, I must suffer. I must be killed. It is the only way for sin to be paid for, for forgiveness to be free. It's like that's the legal necessity behind what's happening here when Jesus sets his face to the cross. But behind that legal necessity is the deep and steadfast and passionate love Jesus has for his people. Jesus suffers and dies on the cross to demonstrate to us God's love for us once and for all. You remember that moment in verse 33. What does Jesus do when he's being tempted? He's being said, don't go to the cross, Jesus. That's horrible. Don't, be, don't suffer. Don't die. Don't be rejected. 
he turns and he looks at his disciples. He says, if I don't do this, you're lost. I'm going to do it. It was Jesus' love for us that gave him the strength to go to the cross. And thinking of Jesus' love for us, lifting our eyes to Jesus' love for us is something we have to keep doing in our lives until we see him face to face. I always love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. He says, you see, at just the right time, we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And then he says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's weird, actually, because in one sense, it looks at first like Paul's grammar is a bit wrong here. Um, because he's got past tense and present tense at the same time. Past tense, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is past tense. It's an historic fact. Nothing can change the fact that Christ died for us. But then Paul uses the present tense. He goes, God demonstrates present tense his love for us in this. Not demonstrated, demonstrates. If we want to know, if we, if we doubt God loves us here and now, we look to the cross, because the cross of Jesus is the ever-present, ever-fresh demonstration that you are loved by the God who made the universe. God will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love that's in Christ Jesus, because God demonstrates day by day by day his love for us in this. Christ died for us 2,000 years ago. It's a fact but we access that fact daily as we look to him. Jesus pays the price for our sin once for all. Jesus demonstrates God's love for us once and for all. So who is Jesus? He's God's king, but he's different. He's better because he suffered and died for his people. And because Jesus suffered and died, we can know we are forgiven and we can know we are loved. And when you know you are forgiven, you begin to realize, actually, maybe then I need to forgive the people who've hurt me. And when you know you are loved, you go, Lord Jesus, show me how to love the people you place around me. We are forgiven. We are loved. The cross tells us that. It's unexpected. And if we get too familiar with it, we, we lose sight of that. But Jesus is the unexpected king who suffers, is rejected, dies, and rises again. To pay the price. To prove God's love. And we're going into Easter week. We're going into Holy Week. Where we say, actually, no matter how my heart is doing right now, God has demonstrated his love for us and he demonstrates present tense every day his love for me as I look to what Christ did in history on that cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Who do you say I am? Says Jesus. He wants our answer to be, you're my king and I love you. 
Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, as we head into the season of Easter, we just want to confess we need your Holy Spirit to work in our lives to remove our spiritual blindness, just as that man had to be healed here, just as the disciples needed you to persevere and patiently heal their sight so they could see you clearly. Lord, we want to see you clearly. Lord Jesus, please keep working on our eyes, Lord. Make us people who are hungry to see more of you. We cry out to you, let me see you, Lord Jesus. You listen to you speak to us and respond in trust and in obedience and in love. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are that once and for all demonstration of the love of God for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that love is fresh today and as new as it was 2,000 years ago, as new as it was before the creation of the world. Help us to know your love for us, Lord. And then help us to live in dependence on your love for us in the days to come. For your glory, we ask it, Lord Jesus. Amen.